Hello, this is Michael, back with another bonus episode. Today we're going to be listening to an episode of The Price of Fear. This was a 1970s radio drama series on the BBC, starring and hosted by Vincent Price. The name of the episode is Lot 132, and it's very scary. When we watched The Tingler a few days ago, I was reminded of this episode, and thought it'd be a good one to share. As we do, pour yourself a drink. Have a seat, turn the lights down low, and enjoy Lot 132 by Vincent Price. The Price of Fear. Brought to you by Vincent Price. I expect some of you may know of my interest in and love of painting. My wife calls it a passion. Indeed, I have very fond memories of my early years in London when, as a student of art history, I shared a flat in Baker Street with... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's another story. I'll, I'll tell you about it sometime. Actually, I paint a little myself, but primarily my interest has always been in buying paintings, some for my personal pleasure, but even more for galleries. Sometimes I've traveled across a continent from one end to the other in pursuit of a painting. In the early days, especially, half the excitement lay in the chase and half in the gamble the backing of one's own judgment. As you may imagine, this passion of mine has led me to some very strange places and into situations one would never have thought possible. There was one such situation so bizarre, so frightening, so disastrous as to be almost unbelievable. Oddly enough... I was reminded of it only last week when I was driving through Winchester, for it was here, twenty years ago, that I unwittingly triggered off an awful chain of events. I shall call my story Lot 132. It was a cold day, I remember, and probably as much to keep warm as anything else, I'd strolled into a small auction room just off of the high street. The auction was about halfway through. Lot 132, a portrait of a man, early 19th century, English school, artist unknown. I moved forward to take a closer look. The portrait was of a man in a crimson riding jacket. He looked about 45, with black hair, a large, bony face, and small, closely set eyes. Now, at that time, I had an interest in a modest gallery in London, and although this was clearly a painting of some quality, I I felt no desire to buy it. Besides, there was something oddly unnerving about that face, particularly the eye. What am I bid? My gaze continued to be drawn to the portrait. It was an... An uncomfortable sensation. Fifteen pounds? Fifteen pounds. Eighteen? Eighteen? 
And there I was, against my will, bidding for lot 132. For an unknown man in a riding jacket. 25 pounds. 25. The portrait was mine. But I, I, I didn't have my usual elation about the purchase. I decided it must be my own illogical hypersensitivity to the face that was, well, that was at fault. When I got back to London, I put the painting in a small anteroom of the gallery and forgot all about it. Until a few days later, when an old acquaintance, Michael Emsley, called on me. Oh, Michael, it's so good to see you. And what a surprise to find you here. Why aren't you in New York? Oh, that's next month. <laughs> I can never give up with you. How are the children? Marvelous. Simon away at school yet? No. At the last minute, we decided against it. Oh, why was that? It's very simple, really. Neither Marion nor I wanted some frosty matron to have the rest of his childhood. <laughs> right. You know, as a foreigner, I've never understood why the English take the trouble to have children, only to banish them for eight months of the year to some... Bastille of learning. <laughs> well, Marion's always been opposed to the idea. How is that beautiful wife of yours? Beautiful? Actually, Marion's the reason I'm here. She has a birthday soon. And you'd like to buy her a painting. That was the idea. <laughs> uh, but uh, something modest, of course. Oh, yes, of course, of course. Now, uh, why don't we have a conducted tour? We walked through and talked about the paintings that interested Michael. Suddenly he stopped and said... That portrait over there. Yeah? I don't know. It seems to draw me to mm. it. I must say, I don't particularly like the chap's face, but I feel compelled to look at him. I'd noticed that throughout the conversation of the past hour, no matter where Michael had been standing in the gallery, he turned round time and again to stare at the face. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, I, I do know what you mean. I, I bought it in Winchester last week. Winchester? Mm -hmm. That's Marion's hometown. Well, then perhaps he's an ancestor. Vincent, what a good idea. Sorry, I'm not with you. Well, she's often said she'd like a few family portraits <laughs> to sport on the walls. <laughs> I see what you mean. But, but supposing she doesn't like him? Uh, that's a point. Look here, why don't you take him on APRO? Hmm? Would you mind? Not at all. I've known you long enough. And so, after we'd exchanged a transaction slip, Michael Emsley took the portrait, promising to give me Marion's answer in a couple of weeks. I must admit, I... I... Well, I wasn't sorry to see it go. One evening, about two weeks later, I was sitting in my study at home, browsing through a recently acquired folio of early 19th century drawings and engravings. I was delighted when halfway through... I turned up an engraving based on that very portrait. What was more, I found out it had been painted by one Jacob Robertson in 1825. He was a painter just now being rediscovered. And the sitter was identified as Nathaniel Jeremiah Blackwell, 1782 to 1830, cloth merchant. The name rang a bell, but... That was all. I was about to telephone Michael the news of my discovery when I noticed the time. It was almost 10.30. Well, I don't know about you, but I dislike being disturbed by the telephone after 10, so I decided to leave the call until morning. 
So the next day I called the Emsley household. Yes? Michael? No, sir. Oh, uh, could I speak to Marion, uh, uh, Mrs. Emsley? I'm afraid not. Would you mind telling me who you are, sir? I didn't recognize the voice, but, well, very briefly, I explained who I was and about the whole portrait business. You say you're a friend, Mr. Price? Yes, yes. How long have you known them, sir? Oh, about seven or eight years. Why? Who are you? Chief Inspector Lowther, sir. Murder squad. Within minutes, I was in the car, heading for the Berkshire village where the Emsleys lived. All I could hear, all I could think about were the words, Murder Squad. What in God's name had happened? My heart was pounding as I drew up at the house. Chief Inspector Lowther met me at the door. Come into the sitting room, please, Mr. Price. Oh, my God, Inspector. This this room, it... It looks as if it had been ravaged by a madman. Madman's the right word, sir. Well, uh, the the Emsleys, Michael, Marion, where are they? Mr. Emsley's at headquarters, taken into custody. Custody? Why? He gave himself up, Mr. Price. Well, uh, and Mrs. Emsley's dead, sir. Murdered. M- murdered? But... What about the children? Oh, for pity's sake, Inspector, where are they... Let me take them. Let me look after They're them. They're dead too, sir. At this point, I... I felt physically sick. My knees seemed about to give way, so I sat down in the only chair left undamaged. As I did so, I noticed lumps and streaks of blood spattering the walls, the curtains, and the carpet. The inspector must have thought I was going to pass out because he poured me a brandy and... We went outside into the fresh air. Gradually, he told me the details. It happened about 10.30 last evening, sir. It seems that Mr. Emsley, for no apparent reason, suddenly went berserk and attacked his wife with a hatchet. Then threw her body into the swimming pool. But, Inspector, it, it, it simply can't be true. Marion, he adored her. Uh, the children, what what happened to them? Poison, Mr. Price. Oh, my God. Weed killer in their milk. Forensics say they were both dead by nine o'clock. Oh, Did Michael Emsley do this, too? I'm afraid so, sir. It's just about the most hideous murder I've ever known. After that, the inspector questioned me about Michael. Well, not being a really close friend, I... I couldn't tell him very much, except that he was... Well, he was the gentlest of men and appeared to be completely devoted to his wife and family. There seemed to be no clue to this sudden, unaccountable violence. When I spoke a little later to their old housekeeper, Mrs. Thomas, the poor woman looked deathly white and was clearly distraught. I keep telling them how kind he was, but I don't think they believe me. There was nothing cruel about Mr. Emsley. It was you who raised the alarm, wasn't it? Oh, yes, Mr. Price. I heard this strange sobbing noise, you see. More like, more like an animal in pain. What time is that, Miss Thomas? Oh, must have been about midnight, Midnight. sir, so... Well, I jumped out of bed. 
And, and that's when I found him. Where? By the swimming pool, sir. And it was too late to stop anything, Mr. Price. He'd already thrown poor Mrs. Emsley's body into... Yes, yes. But the... Look, did, did he try to attack you? Oh, no, 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 sir. Crying like a baby he was. And when he saw me, see, he told me about the children. Yes. <laughs> my poor little loves. Oh, it's all my fault, Mr. Price. If only I hadn't let him take up their bedtime drink. I... Well, didn't he... Didn't he usually? Oh, no, sir, no. I did that, you see, always. But last night, he insisted. Insisted? How do you mean? Well, he... Well, he fairly snatched the mugs off the tray and told me to get out the way. Well, that, that doesn't sound like him. No, sir, it wasn't. But, well, he, he had been a bit funny for about a fortnight. Funny, you, you mean bad-tempered? Then? Yes, yeah, with the children and with Mrs. Emsley, sir. Well, perhaps he was worried about his work. No, I couldn't or... say that, but I know Mrs. Amsley was worried about him. The way he'd sit in his study for hours, just brooding. Not himself at all. And he'd been like this for about two weeks. Just about, sir. Oh, dear, oh, dear. I can't believe it, Mr. Price. I can't believe it. Before leaving, the inspector reminded me about the portrait... When he saw the transaction slip, suggested that I take the painting back with me to London. It was hanging in Michael's study. For a moment, we looked at it together. A thoroughly evil-looking so-and-so, isn't he? Evil. That was it. I didn't know that you could actually smell evil, but you can. That study stank of it. Nathaniel Jeremiah Blackwell seemed to dominate us, and I, I felt an aura of what I can only call satanic triumph emanating from that canvas. But I, I tried to put this down to imagination in my own wretched state of mind. As I left the house, the police had started to empty the swimming pool of its red water. It was a sickening sight. Within hours, the portrait was once again in the back room of the gallery, and although privately I decided either to lose it or even destroy it, I, I said nothing to my partners. I, I could hardly tell them that I destroyed a painting of quality simply because I had a, a, well, a, a feeling about it. The next morning, I flew to New York on my prearranged business trip, and a month later, I found myself in a library in Washington, D.C. Idling away an hour or two, I, I came across a newly published encyclopedia of criminals and criminology. Flicking through the pages, I found this entry. Nathaniel Jeremiah Blackwell, 1782 to 1830. Hanged in London for the murder of his wife and children. Brutally assaulted wife with hatchet. Throwing body into river. Poison put in children's gruel. Nicknamed Killer Satan. So that was it. Blackwell's evil. It must still be alive. How else could one account for Michael Emsley's behavior? But despite instinct, I, 
couldn't logically dismiss the possibility of coincidence. However, I, I didn't intend to take any chances. That portrait had to be destroyed. Immediately, I cancelled all further engagements and the next day flew back to London. Can you imagine my horror? When on arrival at the gallery, I found the portrait had been sold three weeks previously. I had to work quickly. The record showed it had been bought by a Peter Smythe living in Haywards Heath. I telephoned and spoke to his wife, telling her that there had been some confusion over the portrait, that my partner was unaware that I'd promised it to another client. Do you want to buy it back, Mr. Price? Uh, Mrs. Smythe, it, it would save me a great deal of embarrassment if that were possible. Well, so far as I'm concerned, by all means. I can't stand it. It gives me the creeps. Uh, what about your husband? Well, he seems quite fond of it. Uh, it's hanging in his study. I see. Do you think I have any chance of persuading him to part with the painting? You could come over and try, if you like. Thank you. This evening? Yes, but um, could you make it about 8.30? I'll have got the children to bed by then. We'll have more of a chance to talk. Yes, I understand completely. 8.30 then. Thank you, Mrs. Smythe. Goodbye. Coincidence? Imagination? I couldn't take the risk. This time I had to back my instinct. I had to get to the Smythe house before the children were put to bed. I arrived at about eight and left the car parked outside the front gates. As I walked up the long drive, sheer natural curiosity urged me to peer through the window of a small garden shed. Standing on a workbench was a large tin, clearly marked weed killer, poison. I quickened my steps to the house. Approaching the front door, I, I could now see the gardens which lay at the back. When I saw a large ornamental fish pond, my stomach turned over. Weed killer? Water? Coincidence again? I rang the bell. Good evening. You must be Mr. Price. Uh, yes, that's right. I, I'm sorry I'm a little early. Oh, that doesn't matter. I haven't quite got the children settled yet, but do come in. Thank you. Actually, I'm rather glad you are early. Oh. I... I haven't had a chance to tell him about this portrait business oh. yet, but I'd I'd like to explain about my husband. Well, is he ill? Oh no, no, not physically, but but he's well, he's become depressed oh. uh, about life in general. So so he he may give you the wrong impression. But, uh, how, how do you mean? Well, he's always been such a happy easygoing person, no temperament at all, not like me. And he's changed. Oh, yes. Yes, totally. He's moody, he's irrational, and... Uh, he's never been bad-tempered with me and the children for no reason. But now Miss he... Might, how long has this been going on? Oh, about three weeks. Three? I, I can't understand it. it. It happened almost overnight. Three weeks, I see. But uh, does he want to talk about it? I mean, communicate... Oh, or... no. No, that, that's just it. He, he takes himself off to his study and sits there for hours, alone. Well, perhaps he's overworked. Maybe he needs a holiday. Oh, we tried that a week ago. Was he any better? Much. But within a few hours of being home, he, he was just the same. Oh, I'm so worried about him. Do forgive me, Mr. Price, letting my hair down to a complete oh, stranger. Please, not at all. You, you've actually been a great help. 
if, if there's anything I can do... Well, I... as a matter of fact, I hope things may be improving. Oh? Yes, just before you arrived, Peter insisted he took the children's bedtime drink to them. <laughs> he almost threw me out of the kitchen. Mrs. Smythe, where is he now? <laughs> He's in the kitchen making it. The kitchen door opened and Peter Smythe walked out, carrying a tray... There were two mugs of milk on it. I knew that I had to stop him, so I edged to the foot of the stairs. Quickly, I thought, if I held out my hand as if to shake his, I could easily send the tray flying onto the floor. Darling, this is Mr. Price. He wants Get to... out of my way. How do you do, Mr. Smythe? Oh, stupid bloody Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, what must you think of me? Please. Please, it was an accident. Don't you, give me. Don't you, don't you. May I help clear up the mess? No, I... no, no, really, I I'll I'm do it. so sorry, Mrs. Smythe. Look, I, I know this is hardly the time, but I, I really must talk to your husband about that portrait. Yes, of course. Where does he go? Into the study. There's the portraits there, too. Thank you. We crossed the hall to the study. The door was closed. Darling. Darling, someone to see you. Peter? Peter Smythe was sitting at the desk, his back towards us, staring up at the portrait of Nathaniel Blackwell. In a second, I recognized the same smell of evil in that room, and I... I suddenly felt afraid. Peter? Do you feel all right? He sprang out of his chair and turned to face us. In his hand, he held a small hatchet. Peter! What is... He moved swiftly like an animal around the desk. You bitch... You whore. I hate you. Peter! What's the matter with you? Quickly, I moved between him and the desk, and standing behind him, grasped both his wrists. Whore! I hate you. Peter, please. He struggled with me, but I clung on. Finally, I managed to wrench the hatchet out of his grasp. As I swung round, my eyes met those of Nathaniel Jeremiah Blackwell, and in a split second I knew either that portrait must be destroyed or we should be. His evil was still alive, dominating, commanding. Then Peter Smythe, with a lunatic strength, threw himself at me. I shouted to his wife, Hold him! Hold him! Keep him back! It's the portrait! I must destroy that portrait! Hold him! Oh, God! Hold my God! You Leave that portrait alone! Ripped his hands around her neck. Quickly, I struck the portrait. With the first blow, Peter Smythe released his wife, cried out in pain, and reeled around the room. I struck at Blackwell's eyes, his nose, his mouth, his chest. I felt possessed, overwhelmed by anger and hate. But Smythe, his strength ebbing away with each blow, began to whimper like an animal. Finally, the picture cord gave way and Nathaniel Jeremiah Blackwell slid to the floor. Oh, Peter! He's dead! No, no. No, Mrs. Smythe, he's not dead. Just wait a moment. Be patient. No, no we must... We must get a doctor quickly, No, please. no, no. There's no need for that. Your husband has simply been... Released. Oh, Peter. Oh, thank God. Oh, darling. What? What happened? You. You. Nothing happened, Mr. Smith. Oh. Hmm? Will he remember, do you think? Only as one remembers a nightmare. 
At first, a few details will remain clear. And then gradually, in time, all will be forgotten. And by you, too, Mrs. Meyer. Uh, I haven't hurt you. Have I done it? No, my love. You haven't. Not you. What strange powers a painting can have. Sometimes good. But in the case of Nathaniel Jeremiah Blackwell, evil. Hours later, after I'd burned what remained of the canvas, I, I told the Smythes the whole story. There was one thing I didn't tell them, however, but I'll, I'll tell you. When the portrait crashed to the ground and Peter Smythe lay exhausted in his wife's arms, I noticed the vermilion paint of Blackwell's hunting jacket had come off the canvas and lined the knife edge of the hatchet. That was understandable. But why had so much appeared on my hands and streaked my wrists? Old paint should flake or powder. But this was wet, very wet. When I washed my hands a few moments later, I knew why. It wasn't paint. It was blood. Do any of you listening at home have portraits hanging on your walls? Are they of unknown cities? <laughs> Be careful how you look at them. You never know. Goodbye. Vincent Price bringing you The Price of Fear with Elizabeth Morgan, Douglas Blackwell and Alexander John. This story, Lot 132, was first recounted and dramatised by Elizabeth Morgan and produced by John Dice.